Our confession of faith today comes from the Nicene Creed. Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe believe in one God, God, the Father Father Almighty, maker of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he arose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise. And we do shout for joy to our great God, for who you are, you are God, our creator, our maker, you are God, our ruler, our king. You are God, our redeemer. You are God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no other God You are three persons in one. You are beyond our understanding. And that little bit that we can grasp is so glorious to us. You are holy. You are majestic. You are merciful. And we praise you and worship you. We praise you and give you praise that we may come into the most holy place. And know that you receive our prayers. Because we are righteous. We have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has borne our sins upon his own shoulders upon the cross. And he has exchanged for those sins. Uh, He has given to us his righteousness. And so we know that you will receive our worship. That you look upon us. It's hard to even uh, to believe it. It seems dangerous to believe, but you look down upon us as righteous and holy. All because we are covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we pray as your righteous, as your holy people, that we will keep holy your name. That we will honor you in all that we do, that we say, all that we think. We pray that we will be faithful in the service of your kingdom until our Lord returns. We will be faithful as as citizens of your kingdom, uh, serving 
for your cause, helping to spread the gospel, showing forth the gospel of Jesus and the love of Jesus Christ in our homes, in our schools, in our communities, before all the world. We pray for those whom we support. You've given us the privilege to support who have taken the gospel to other lands and other cultures. We pray that they may bear fruit uh, in their service to you. We pray, our Father, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we, your people, will do your will, to show what it is to live a life, whatever pressures may come against us, however we may be regarded or mistreated. We pray that we will faithfully carry out your will to love our neighbor to love our enemies, uh, to show forth again that mercy of God our Father, the love of Christ the Son. We pray for you to give to us our daily bread that you provide for us. This morning we've gathered here to worship you, and we pray that you'll feed us. Feed us with your word. Feed us with the, the music, the prayers, the fellowship of one another. That we may go forth all the more Uh, able to serve in your kingdom. We pray, our Father, that you would forgive our debts, and our debts are many. Maybe the debts of not loving our neighbor as ourselves, of putting other things, other people, of other desires before our desire to worship you and to enjoy you. Our Father, there are many ways in which we have failed to live up to the mark, that that perfect mark that you have given to us to live. There's those sins that we have transgressed, those sins that we just have failed to do, what we knew was right. We pray that you forgive us for not forgiving our debtors, that you give us such a spirit, that we forgive others who have offended us, to forgive others who have annoyed us, to forgive others for whom it has not been easy to love. And we pray that we not be led into temptation. You know the weakness of our flesh. And all the more we look to you to deliver us from evil, from the evil one, from the evil that is in this world. And we can make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. In Christ's name, amen.
Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy of this?
Well, have you ever come to a class, maybe you went to a lecture or something to receive instruction about something, and you, you're there, you want to know what to do, and you want to know how to do it. But to your dismay, the instructor just rambles on about whatever. And all the while you're thinking, get to the point. Maybe maybe you've heard a preacher. You're just wondering, when's he ever going to get to the point? Well, we've come to the point of the letter of Hebrews. And our anonymous author has taken nine and a half chapters to get there. And he's gone through all these kind of Old Testament references. He's had these long discussions about, you know, some guy named Melchizedek, about covenants, about rituals, about sacrifices. Well, finally, he is getting to the point of it all. So let's look into our text now and see why he's telling us all these things. Okay, so we're looking at verse 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we're going to stop right there. He has just recapped in just those couple of sentences there all that he's been saying in these nine and a half chapters. Uh, and for those of you, by the way, who've been fo- able to follow along, you've, you've listened to all these messages and gone through all this, I hope that you'll see the value of preaching through a book of the Bible. Because you can now, when you're looking at this text, you can start to nod your head and, and go, yeah, I understand just what he, what he means by all this. You, you know what those holy places are. Those are the two rooms in the tabernacle. You know that the holy place is where only the priest can come in. And that the most holy place, that there's a curtain there. And only the high priest can go there. You know that the tabernacle is considered the house of God. And as such, it is off limits to the common people. God is holy, people are not, and so God is off limits. And you also know, though, that Jesus has come and Jesus opens the way to God. What has our authors told us? By his blood, he's done what? He's redeemed us. He has purified us. He has borne our sins and our punishment so that we have received forgiveness of our sins. He has even bestowed on us his righteousness. And so we are now counted righteous We are counted holy in the sight of God. And that most holy place in heaven, it's now open to us. Jesus has already entered before us. He has entered, what, with his blood, in his resurrected body. And so our confidence lies completely in his complete work. His all-sufficient, his one-time sacrifice that secures our eternal redemption. Now, our confidence also just lies in who Jesus is. He's accomplished his great work because he is the great priest, the great high priest over the house of God. 
He's, we've been told he's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than all the priests put together. Because he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the one, Jesus Christ is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is God the Son. We are his household, of which he is the heir and over which he is the head. He possesses the power to keep us safe. And he also, because of his incarnation, he's understanding of us. He's sympathetic towards our weaknesses. So, since we know these great truths about our Lord and his great work, since we can place our confidence alone in him and in that work, therefore, therefore the impact on that kind of knowledge and confidence, it should have this kind of impact upon us. And he gives us three ways. So we'll look at the first one in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first thing, knowing this, it causes us to do is to freely draw near to God. Again, that most holy place is open. You know, we've had interviews, haven't we, in which we were timid, maybe even fearful because we did not know how we were going to be received. Might have been a job interview. Aren't you glad that you're never going to be nominated to be on the Supreme Court and have those interviews? Maybe you've been called to the principal's office. Maybe before a judge. Maybe before your spouse. And you wonder, how will I be received? Well, how do you expect to be received by God? I mean, well, how do you expect to be received considering what Christ has done for you? Are you worried about your sins? Well, you remember that ledger book? There's no record of your sins. Remember, on the cross... Jesus had those debts, your debts, transferred to his account. And then at the cross, he also had his righteousness transferred over to you. And so, whereas before you did have cause to be fearful, there was a time in which you were an outcast, just a sinner. Now you're a child of God. Christ is your brother. God the Father is actually your Father. Now I want you to listen carefully to what I consider one of the most important lessons I I ever have had to teach. It's one of the most important lessons I have ever learned. For years as a Christian, and even as a minister, I had lived under a cloud of kind of an uneasy guilt. I'd look at myself with disappointment. I should have more courage for Jesus. I should, I should certainly be more fruitful. And I keep, I keep committing the same sins. I keep, 
failing to live the way I should, how many times can God be expected to forgive again and again? And I'd wonder how disappointed Jesus must be with me. I mean, I died for you, and this is what you're doing? And finally, one day, the reality hit me. I can't remember why. But the reality hit me of my what was my real sinful attitude. I was filled with fear, and I was filled with remorse because I doubted. I doubted the promise of God. I doubted the work of Jesus. My standing before God does not rest on how great I am, but on how great is my Lord Jesus Christ, my high priest. And God does not love me because I have proven myself well to have been such a great recruit. He loves me for what Christ has made of me. It is in Christ that I and that you are to have full assurance of faith. Did Jesus accomplish his work for you on the cross or not? I mean, it's that simple. And so a true heart that's spoken of here is a heart that trusts in the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, our author adds this phrase, with our hearts sprinkled clean for an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, there's that conscience again. But note, what, note what's said about it. It is a conscience that has been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. It is not a conscience dependent upon how well we keep washing ourselves. Now, I believe here, when it mentions here about bodies washed with pure water, it is referring to baptism. But we're to understand that baptism in the right way. Outward baptism is, an inner, is a sign of the inner baptism that's taken place. The Holy Spirit has sprinkled us with the blood of Christ. And once that happens, that inner baptism, it does clean our conscience uh, for good. Now, I mean, you just think of this experience-wise. This is why you feel conviction of sin. It's why you struggle against temptation. You don't enjoy it. This is why you do not rest on your goodness to be right before God. You're, you're uneasy when you depend upon your goodness and your good works. You know that your only assurance is found in the work of Christ alone. And so with this knowledge, draw near to God. Draw near to God in confidence. Go to him in prayer. With confidence, as the author has already told us, draw near to the throne of grace and knowing that you will receive mercy. You will find the grace you need to help you in time of need. Why? Because of Jesus Christ, your high priest, has opened the way for you. And you can now know that God the Father will welcome you. So that's the first lesson we are to learn. We're to draw near to God in full assurance. Watch the second one in verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
We're to hold fast to what we believe. And now we're getting to the point. This is the point, the primary application of the letter of Hebrews. It is perseverance. Our author has already impressed this upon his readers a number of times. Persevere. Do not waver. Let's recall the context of the letter. Our author is likely writing to Jewish believers. They have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But time goes on. And they're feeling the pressure. Return to their former way of life. And our author is saying, persevere. Do not waver. He's exhorting them. Your families might be placing pressure on you. Your jobs might be in danger. Uh, Your standing before the community might be in danger. But hold fast. Hold fast to the confession of your hope. Why does he use that word hope? We have to understand biblical hope is not a vague, wishful feeling. I, I hope things will get better. It is looking to the promises of God. And specifically, his promise to, in, to grant the inheritance of eternal life and what all comes with that life. There's the resurrection of a glorious body. There is living in the new kingdom when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And it is a hope that is built on the already completed work of our high priest, Jesus Christ. That's why it's not mere wishful feeling. It is trusting in the promise of God because of who God is, of what God has already done. He's already fulfilled the promise of sending the Messiah. And the Messiah has already come. And he has completed that work of redemption. And so we can count on God. We can count on Jesus to fulfill their promise of his return. Furthermore, our author has already said, just fun who God is. Uh, He has proven himself faithful. And if he makes a promise, two things our author told us. He He cannot lie and he cannot break a promise. If he makes a promise, we can count on it. And so draw near to God in full assurance that he will receive us and hold fast to the good confession of who Christ is of what Christ has done. You know, and we can have this assurance. We can trust. We can hold fast to our confession. Since Christ has atoned for our sins with his blood and even now continues to serve as our high priest. Now, having said all this, and knowing all this, we still struggle, don't we, with our faith, keeping that faith. And our author understands this. And so he now gives practical counsel for how to keep the course. Look with me in 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, let's consider... what our author wants us to consider. He wants us to consider how to stir up one another. Now, the Greek term for 
that's been translated here, stirred up. It's really a strong one. And actually, it's usually most of the time in a negative way. It's the word provoke. Okay? You're to provoke each other. Well, provoke one another to do what? To love and to good works. You know, you would have thought in the context that they would have been, he would have said they should be provoked to draw near to God, to hold fast to that confession. But verse 25 gives us insight into what our author, what he's aiming for. He is provoking his readers to get back to meeting together. Apparently, attendance at worship, maybe at other fellowship meetings, are dropping off. Now, there, there's no indication of a, of a crisis that has affected their, their attendance. The likely scenario is that just, well, just ongoing pressure, again, for these mostly Jewish believers to, to return back, return back to the ways of their families, of their community. Perhaps, probably, daily life is just starting to get harder. You know how it is, the early excitement of a new faith, just starts to wear off. And the teaching, well, you know, it's not always inspiring. And the singing, maybe kind of starting to lack vitality. And then you got members of the church family who are finding, very surprisingly, that other members of the church family, they're not always agreeable. They're not all that likable. And then, you know, well, hey, look, life is getting busier. I mean, you've got to make a living, you've got to take care of a home, you're raising children. It's just easier to remain home. Well, it is easier, but it's also deadly. If we are not stirring up one another to love and good works, if we're not being stirred up by others, then our faith will well, just kind of quietly die. We're never in a more dangerous spot than when we are alone for an extended time. We're never open more to spiritual lethargy and to spiritual attack if we are not being provoked to love by others in the faith. Then our love will not only lose its fervor. Again, when that faith is not being stoked by love, it's just kind of quietly lies dormant, quietly dies. Belief and action go hand in hand. They feed off of each other. They build up each other. They were never meant to be separated, to be alone. And for that matter, neither were we meant to be alone. We need the presence of each other. We need the encouragement of each other. This is how God has hardwired us to need each fears are stoked. There's anger as people take sides on, man, yeah, we've got to have masks. No, we don't need masks and social distancing. And, I mean, it just goes on and, and it just breeds depression. You know, and then I, your pastor, you go in the hospital, I can't visit you. You're going to have surgery. Normally, I'm there. I'm going to have prayer with you. I can't be there. You may not even have, you can't have your family members there. 
Separation is depressing. And then it's just dragging on, isn't it? I mean, there's just no clear sight as to when is it going to be over. As your pastor then, what I want you to add into this equation is to look into your commitment to Christ. And when I was writing this, I almost said your spiritual health. But if I had done that, if I was only speaking in terms of how you are feeling spiritually, then I would have missed the point of the, of the passage. And then you might even also just miss how you really are doing spiritually. You're likely to say to me, if I were to ask you, how are you doing? You say, Pastor, I'm doing fine. And you're speaking sincerely. You're not trying to hide anything. I mean, after all, you have everything that you need at home. You're live streaming the, the service. In fact, maybe you'll watch some other services. Maybe you already watched one. Maybe you'll watch another one later on today. It's now that you're, you're doing this kind of thing. And, um, you know, you listen to other sermons and, and you've all been polite to saying you've just only listened to other sermons. You didn't mention about how much better those other preachers are. You listen to Christian music. I mean, the music that you really do like singing. And you have books uh, to read. You got all that social media. But here's the diagnostic questions that I think our author would have us consider. Do you miss worshiping together with your church family? Or have you just found the convenience of being at home is just more enticing? You can choose your time. You can wear whatever you want to wear. You have your smartphone out and keep up with your emails and whatever else at the same time. You can wash dishes, whatever. Has the kind of worship experience, has what you really care about, has that changed? Has being at home become the worship that you actually prefer? Now, I know that some, you know, most people who, who are staying at home are staying home for for valid health reasons. Okay. But then there are others who have not attended because, well, and they told me this, just all those regulations, it just takes away from the worship experience. I mean, you know, the mass, you're having to spread out, you have to be ushered in, you got to wait till you're ushered out, you can't meet in the narthex, and I mean, it's a bummer. And so for those reasons, they stay away or, or just go to another church where you don't have any of those regulations. But here's the question that I need to ask. Are you going elsewhere or do you stay home out of your commitment to God? This is what God wants. Or is it just out of commitment to what you like? This is what I feel better with. Now, I know, I know I'm touching on sensitive points here. But I'm trying to be faithful to our text. And I'm trying to provoke you. I'm trying to provoke myself to to do the serious prodding into our hearts. Now, look, I'm the pastor. I have to be here. Would I, if I were not the pastor, 
have that same drive to be here? I'm not sure. So the question remains, it remains for me, and the question remains for all of us. What lies in our hearts about being together? Does it really matter to us? Now, if you're at home, does it bother you to have to stay at home? Do you yearn to be in this sanctuary with members of your church family? Or, to be honest, you know, I've gotten rather used to this. And maybe you find it preferable. All of us. Have we found that this, you know, this new phrase we have, this new normal, has it gotten us, is it quietly making us what Proverbs would call us sluggards? Now you might say, well, no, no, like I, my devotions have never been stronger. In fact, some people have said this to me. They have spent more time in the Word than they've ever spent before. The question, though, is what about your good works for others? Do you make a conscious effort to communicate with your brothers and sisters, especially in this pandemic? You know, we have the great advantage that these readers of our, our author never would have had We have the modern technology. You can email, you can send and receive videos, you can text, you can Zoom, but you say, look, that's all too complicated for me. Well, you can write letters. You can can use a phone, or you can visit. You say, well, I'm too uncomfortable going into anyone's house. Well, you cannot ask for better weather, can you? than to meet outdoors. You say, well, look, I don't feel safe uh, without masks. On the other hand, I can't really wear a mask. Well, do what a number of folks I see here already in the sanctuary. They get these shields and they can actually breathe while they still got it. Or just stay six or seven or eight feet apart. Here's the point. We all have a choice. We can use COVID as the all-encompassing excuse not to keep the commandment of our Lord to go out and encourage others. Or we can come up with solutions, figure out a way that's going to enable us to stir up one another to love and good works. If you only see the obstacles, if all you got are the excuses, then you need to do a real examination. You need to find out if you really are holding fast to your confession because your Lord has commanded you to actively love your brothers and sisters. Well, we might have a new normal, but that new normal must not make us accept that we do not need one another, that we are no longer called to to stir up one another to love, to good works, that we're no longer commanded to encourage each other, encourage one another to to draw near to God, encourage one another to hold fast to our confession. Let us not neglect to be there for one another in any way that we can.
We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to be with us and who has remained with us and by your Holy Spirit. Father, give us that same heart, that heart to love one another, to to want to, to desire to be with each other, to do whatever we can, to build each other up, to make that call, to, to do that reaching out, so that we might stir one another to love and to good works. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing together. Blessed be the tie that binds. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.